You're listening to RUF at UT Podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. If y'all will direct your attention to a reading from the Gospel of John. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. We have been working our way through the Gospel of John, and we're going to continue doing that tonight and then next week for our final hoorah. But uh, tonight is a really interesting story. It's a familiar story, famous story for, for a lot of reasons. And we've been looking at Jesus's one-on-one conversations that he has with people. And tonight he has a conversation with one of his disciples, one of his followers, a guy named Peter. And the theme of their conversation is really interesting because it's really about this dual theme of pride and humility. In this story, you see the, really the shocking humility of Jesus, and then you see kind of the subtle pride of Peter. So I want to, look, I want to take a closer look at pride. I think this story has a lot to teach us. I really want to just draw out three big ideas. The ideas are this, that pride has an evil twin, pride has an allergy, and pride has a medicine. So this is the three big ideas I want to look at with you tonight. I was on the, on the drive over here tonight. I was thinking I would change it so that it would rhyme. It could be pride has an evil twin, pride has an allergen, <laughs> and pride has a medicine. So if you like that outline better, go with that one. But let's, that's what we're doing. So let's look, at the, let's look at the first idea, that pride has an evil twin. And, and here's how I want to kind of get into this. If you look at the actual story, the story begins, or if you look at verse 2, John chapter 13 is a dinner scene. This is, this is, this is the, the last meal that Jesus has with his disciples before he's crucified tomorrow, the next day. 
This is why some people have really creatively called this moment the Last Supper. And uh, if you've happened to have seen the, the painting uh, by Leonardo da Vinci of the Last Supper, you'll, you'll, you'll remember it's Jesus and his disciples kind of sitting on one side of a giant farm table eating food. And that is a great painting, but it is culturally inaccurate. People in Jesus's culture did not sit on European farm tables like we do and eat meals. They would sit around a table that was really only a few inches off the ground, and they would lean. I'm going to do it. They would lean on their left side. Nobody can see me. That's all right. They would lean on their left side, and they would eat with their right hand. And... uh, their, their feet would be outstretched behind them away from the food because their feet were nasty. Back then, their feet were gross. Feet are still gross. And the, the reason why their feet were particularly gross is they, um, they did not have closed-toed shoes, which meant that they walked around either barefoot or with sandals, like Chaco things. So not only are, they, are their feet just getting dirty and muddy and Gross. You have to remember, this is a society in which large animals coexisted with people, which means as you're walking around the streets of Jerusalem, you're walking through, oh, I don't know, goat urine and camel feces and llama vomit and you know, whatever else. <laughs> so their feet are disgusting. There was this hospitality custom that got developed where when you came over to someone's house, someone would wash your feet. And this job, because it was gross, it was, like, it was a dirty job that was relegated really only to slaves. And it wasn't even Jewish slaves, it was Gentile slaves. So it was like the lowest of the low did this gross and disgusting job, dealing with people's feet. So this is why it's so crazy. In verse 4 and 5, when it's Jesus that stands up from the table, he takes off his outer garment, he goes over and he fills up a basin, a bowl of water, and he kneels down and he starts washing their feet. He starts wiping the grit and the poop from in between the toes of his disciples, and they are freaked out. They're offended. This is weird. This is wrong. Jesus is like their Lord and their master, their king, and he's humiliating themselves. They don't even have a category for this. And I was trying to think of a way of what this would, could potentially look like in our cultural context. I don't know if there's a way to accurately translate how crazy this would be. A friend of mine helped me, I think, at least get close. And here's what this might look like. It could look like you showing up to a frat house on a Saturday morning after the night like a giant throwdown party that happened the night before. So you can imagine there's red solo cups everywhere, there's spilled beer, there's vomit in the corner, there's people passed out, heroin needles everywhere, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> and um, whatever you frat people do in your parties. And so you can imagine you walk into this frat house that Saturday morning and the smell already hits you, just the wall. It's, just, it's a combination of college male, sweat, beer, vomit, urine, and you're, you're just like, I need a shower. And you look over, and there is somebody scrubbing the vomit out of the carpet, and you get a little closer, and it's Peyton Manning. 
in all of his Tennessee glory and legacy, and you would be confused on lots of different levels. But this is, so this is Jesus. This is the Lord of the universe, the one who is sustaining reality from all of eternity. And here he is kneeling down, scraping vomit out of the carpet, essentially. He, he's, he's wiping the dirt and the poop out of his disciples' feet, and they're so shocked, they're so offended. So when he has the towel, and he makes his way over to his disciple Peter, look at what Peter's reaction is. This is verse 6. Lord, do you wash my feet? He's shocked. He's saying, Lord, you're the Lord. You're my master. You're my king. You can't touch my feet. My feet are disgusting. I've got fungus and bunions, and I've got the long, weird toenail that scrapes my calf when I sleep. And it's just like, (laughs) you do not want to go there. And this sounds, this sounds so pious, right? This sounds humble, like, Lord, not me, not me. Surely someone like you should not do something like that to me. And it sounds almost like he's honoring Jesus, He's so pious, he's so humble. But I want you to notice, what is the bottom line? What is he actually doing? He is looking God incarnate in the face and saying, no, I can't accept this from you. I I refuse to let you do that to me. Which is really interesting that that this feels like, uh, it, it looks like humility, It looks like he is being pious, but do you see the arrogance in what he's doing? He's he's looking at Jesus and saying, I'm too much for you. I'm too much for you. That sounds so humble. That is unbelievably arrogant. I'm too much for you to relate to. do Do you see how that is? This is what I mean by pride's evil twin. It's pride that's dressing up in humility, but is in fact not humble. It's deeply arrogant. And if you, think about, if you think how this manifests itself, there's lots of different ways. I've had conversations with students through the years where they'll look at me and say, Matt, you do not know what I have done. My sin is, is too big. It's too, it's too frequent. I, I screwed up too much. I have hurt myself. I have hurt my family. I have hurt my friends. And I knew before I did it that it was going to be harmful and destructive and that it was going to be wrong, and I did it anyway. There's no way that God could forgive me for that. That looks really humble. But do you, do you see the arrogance in that? My sin is bigger than God's ability to forgive. I have more power than God. My sin is so powerful, God can't touch it. That is, that is counterfeit humility. It's, it's, it's pride dressing up in a costume. And, and, and that, that may not be your situation. Your situation may be, look, I know that God forgives me. I get that. My problem is I can't forgive myself. Remember, y'all thought that? I've thought that. I've said that. What are we, think through that with me. What are we saying when we say that? Because it sounds humble. I know that God forgives me. I could never forgive myself, though. What you're saying in that moment is, God's opinion of me, yeah, yeah, whatever. What really matters is my opinion of me. 
What is mostly substantive and the most important thing is not God's opinion of me. It's my opinion of me. God forgives me. Yeah, 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 whatever. I can never forgive myself. You see the arrogance in that? The pride in that? That's Peter. Pride has this evil twin where it looks so humble. It looks so pious. Lord, not my feet? No. Oh, it's unbelievably arrogant. So pride has an evil twin, but but there's a... There's more here. So let's keep going. Pride has an allergen. And, and here's what I mean by that. Pride, ha- pride has an allergy. And you see this kind of fleshed out as the story goes on. Uh, Peter, Jesus moves towards Peter's feet. Peter pulls his feet back. He's like, Lord, no, 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 not me. Not little old me. And here's what Jesus says to him. Uh, um, verse 7. What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. We're going to circle back to what that means in a second. But Peter's confused by that. And Peter is still refusing to let Jesus wash his feet. And so he turns up the volume. He, he resists a second time now, only now with a little bit more tood to it. L- look at verse 8. You shall never wash my feet. I mean, that's pretty bold. There is no way you're touching my feet. You shall never touch my feet. This act of grace and love, it's pressing on Jesus, on Peter's pride in such a way that he's having an allergic reaction to it. He's like, ham, no, you are not touching my feet. No way you're getting near me. Now, now why is that? Why is he having an allergic reaction to this expression of love and grace? Well, think about it. Um, Victor Hugo, who is a French, famous French writer, has this amazing quote where he says, grace is a most formidable assault. Grace is a most formidable assault. Grace is an assault. Flannery O'Connor, who's a great Southern short story author, she says something very similar. She says, grace must wound before it can heal. Now, how is grace an assault and a, a wound? Because I thought grace was like getting what you don't deserve. Grace is like a warm blanket you kind of curl up in. Grace is like receiving a Christmas gift. It's like, how is it an assault, a wound? Well, we'll think about it. Um, uh, what do you think it is that keeps you from God? If I were to sit down with coffee or milkshake or whatever, and we were to sit down, and I were to ask you that question, what do you think it is that keeps you, prevents you from connecting with God? My guess is, if you're honest, you would answer and say something like, well, it's the things I don't like about myself. It's my mistakes. It's my failures. It's my addictions, my secrets, my sin. And it's interesting. If you read through the gospel accounts, nobody is too bad for Jesus. It's, it's not sin that keeps you from Jesus. I mean, Jesus is hanging out with prostitutes and alcoholics and white-collar criminals and sex addicts. I mean, you, you are never so bad. You're never too bad for Jesus. But if you read through the Gospels, you can actually be too good for Jesus because it's actually the good people, the upright people, the, the rule follower, the religious people, they resist Jesus all the time. They're the ones that kill him. And so you see this pattern emerge that it's not our sin that keeps us from Jesus. It's our goodness. It's pride in our goodness. That's the thing that keeps us from Jesus. So 
um, Jesus, if you wash my feet, that requires me to admit that I needed it. And I have an allergic reaction to that. If you're going to move towards me with grace, and for, for me to receive that is, is for me to admit that I needed it. And there's something in us that hates that. I mean, think about it. As disgusting as it would be, I think most of us in this room would much rather be the foot washer than to be the one receiving the foot washing. We would much rather, as gross as it might be, if, if we were to have a, an option right here, would you rather me wash your feet right up here on stage or would you rather wash mine? I think you're probably more comfortable washing mine. Do you know how intimate it would be for me to be right up next to you? That's a gross image. Massaging, <laughs> massaging your feet. I mean, think about it. Some of y'all serve and you give yourselves in, in, in tons of way to other people. And I think deep down we have to admit it is so much harder to be served than it is to serve. It's, it is hard to receive charity because it, it wounds our pride. It assaults us. Uh, think about how people receive compliments. I've started to notice this recently. I just pointed this out. We had this conversation earlier today. I'm not talking about her. Um, have you ever paid attention to how people receive compliments? People get weird when you genuinely compliment them. If you were to say, hey, I am so thankful that you're my friend and that you're in my life. You're a great roommate. People are like, ah, you're a, you're a great. You're a great roommate. <laughs> it's like, that's a weird reaction. Nobody knows how to just receive love. We get weird and squirrely. It's like, ah, it was nothing. Ah, you're great. And so it, we get weird. We don't know how to receive compliments. That's, you know, that's your homework tonight. Go compliment someone who's not in this room so they don't know what the setup is genuinely compliment them and just see how weirdly they respond. <laughs> but it's, it's the same way whenever you, um, whenever you go out to you know, dinner, I'm sure you've experienced this with your, with your family or maybe you yourself, where you go out to a meal with somebody and the other person offers to pay for the meal and there's something in you that's like, oh, no, no, you, you don't need to do that. And then they say, of course, I insist. And they take the ticket and they pay. And you can't just receive it, can you? What do you say? I got you next time. I got, I'll, I, well, I got you next time. There's something in you that I just can't receive. I've got to settle the score. What if you had a friend that you went out to lunch with and they always paid? You may be like, that would be amazing. I need to meet that friend. <laughs> but what would, it, what would it feel like if you were in the position where you just had to receive over and over and over and over. It would make you feel deeply uncomfortable. It would be an assault and a wound to your pride. We don't, we don't know how to just receive. I cannot simply receive love from you. I, I need to contribute something. I mean, we've, we all know this person, right? We all know the person that loves to serve everybody else. They're the workhorse that just gives and gives and gives. Every conversation is about you. They're asking all the right questions. But the moment you try to serve them, oh no. Like the, the moment you try to ask them about their life, it's like a quick deflection back to you. And, and if that's you, there's a devastating question here for you. If you cannot receive charity from people, what makes you think that you've received it from God? If, if we don't know how to receive love and grace... 
then we don't know how to have a relationship with God. Two summers ago at RUF Summer Conference, our main speaker was this guy named Rankin Wilburn, who's one of my favorite speakers. He's a pastor out at a Presbyterian church in Los Angeles. And he was preaching on this text, and he made this point that I will never forget. Here's, here's basically what he said. He said, people say all the time, it's the love of God that changes you. And he says, technically speaking, that's not true. Because what is true is that God loves everyone in this room. God has a particular individual tender way that he loves everyone in this room. And the sad reality is that not all of our lives are changed as a result of that. So it's not true that God's love is what changes you, otherwise we'd all be changed. What is true is that it's the receiving of his love that changes you. That's why you can hear You can come into RUF or go to your church and hear sermon after sermon after sermon about the love of God and the grace of God, and it doesn't change you because maybe you haven't allowed yourself to receive it, to actually just say, I've got nothing. I'm not going to contribute anything. I'm just going to receive it. I've heard this story. I think I've told this story to you all sometime in the past. There There was a student involved with RUF at a different campus I don't know how long ago this was, but he was like the rock star student. He was like attractive, athletic, fun. He was a leader. He led all the Bible studies. Everyone loved him. And he um, got uh, Hodgkin's disease, which is a a form of uh, cancer. It's a curable form of cancer, but it's no less just this awful, painful treatment to to get it fixed. And he's going through chemo. He's going through the treatment. And uh, he basically kind of loses everything. He loses his comfort. I mean, he's like in a hospital uh, undergoing chemo. He, he loses um, his position as a Bible study leader. He's not leading any Bible studies on campus. Um, he, he loses his kind of good looks and his health. He kind of withers down to nothing. And there's one night, as the story goes, where he's in the hospital bed. It's in the middle of the night, and he gets up to go use the restroom, which is like, 20 feet away or whatever. And he gets out of, his, out of his bed and he's walking to the bathroom and he's so weak that he just collapses. And he falls on the ground and his face is just pressed up against the cold tile. And he said it was in that moment that he finally understood what grace was. That was the moment when he said that he, he got grace. It clicked for him. Because here's someone who has not been doing anything for God for the past couple months. He hasn't felt like praying or reading the Bible in months. He hasn't been leading any Bible studies on campus. He's been doing nothing. And he realized at that moment, there I am so weak and helpless on the floor, I can't even get to the bathroom by myself. And I realized God loves me just as much in that moment as he does when I'm on campus leading Bible studies. That was the moment that he understood what grace was. You know what Jesus said? He said, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you have to become like a little child. Do you know what a little child, you know what an infant is? They are a, they're 100% receivers. They contribute nothing to society (laughs) except poop and vomit. That's their contribution. And Jesus says, if you want to be a part of the kingdom, if you want to have a relationship with me, you must learn how to receive 
with empty hands. You've got nothing. You can't contribute. You can't pay it back. You just have to receive. And that is such an assault on our pride. That, that's, the allergic, that's the allergy. Pride's allergy is grace. But here's the last thing I want to look at. What's the medicine? What's, like, what do we do about this? What's the, what, is, what does Jesus offer to us in terms of the cure? And I want to go back to the beginning. If you look at the very beginning, let me read you verse 1. It says this. <clears throat> now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus knows that this is the night before his crucifixion, and so he wants to show his disciples the full extent of his love. When it says there at the end that he he loved his disciples to the end, that's not talking about chronology, meaning he, he didn't just love them to the end of his life. It means utterly. He wanted to show them the utter full extent of his love. And so this is why in verse 7 when he says, what I'm doing right now you don't understand but you will understand after. Meaning, Peter, you don't get what I'm doing right now, but after my death and my resurrection, you are going to see the full extent of my love. The full extent of my love for you is not that I humbled myself to wash your feet. The full extent of my love for you is that I humbled myself to die for you. In other words, what he's saying to Peter is this. Look, if you are so shocked that I would be humiliated to wash your feet right now, dude, you haven't seen anything yet. Wait till tomorrow. Because what I'm going to do tomorrow is not just take off my outer garment. I am going to be completely stripped naked. What what I'm going to do tomorrow is not just be humiliated in front of 12 dudes at a private dinner party. I'm going to be humiliated in front of the entire world. I'm going to be crucified in front of this enormous crowd, and they're going to document it and write it down and talk about it, and they're going to keep talking about it all through the ages, and that story is going to spread all throughout the continents. And 2,000 years from now, there's going to be a group of people in Knoxville, Tennessee, that are hearing about my humiliating death. The entire world is going to know that I was humiliated. You haven't seen anything yet. Wait till tomorrow, Peter. Because I'm not just going to pour out some water to wash the dirt off your feet. I'm going to pour out my blood to wash the sin out of your heart. He's looking at Peter and saying this. If you cannot, if you cannot accept the partial humiliation of me washing your feet right now, how in the world are you going to expect or accept the total humiliation of me for you tomorrow? Peter, will you let me love you? Will you let me love you on my terms? That's what he's saying. This is why he tells Peter in verse 8, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus, Jesus is saying this, I must do this to you and you must let me. This is the only way that we are going to relate. I am the giver you are the receiver. If you don't want to receive, we don't have a relationship. This is the arrangement. Will you receive this? Will you let me love you? And look at what Peter's reaction is. It's like he gets it. It's like the light goes on and he says, okay, um, this is verse 9. Lord, not my feet only, but like everything else. All of me. Wash my hands. Wash my head. Peter's realizing this. If I have the choice between my pride or Jesus, he says this, damn my pride and give me Jesus. 
damn my pride and give me him. Because my pride is the thing that's keeping me from him. The medicine to your pride is to let Jesus love you, to receive it, to get to surrender to it, to give into it. I know it is an assault, I know it is a wound, but if it wounds you, it will then heal you if you give yourself to it. That's, the, that's kind of the first step in the treatment plan, but there's another step. Jesus says, if you want your pride to be eroded and dealt with and cured, you have to let me love you, but then also you need to develop a way of life in which you love others like that. If I humbled myself to serve you, what I want you to do now is humble yourself and serve others. This is basically what verse 12 through 17 is all about. Look at verse 14 real quick. He says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, the application of this is not, okay, RUF, let's go build a booth on Ped Walkway and wash people's feet as they go to the lib in between classes. Like, this is not the application of this. Jesus, this is the only time Jesus ever did this. Jesus is saying, in other words, you need to develop a way of life. Humbling yourself to serve other people like this is a way of life. There's a, um, there's a, book, that, a book that I recently heard about called Love is the Killer App. And it tells this story in the book of this guy named Steve, who was like this boss or manager of like an engineering company or something. And he intentionally went around to every single employee that was under him and, and just found some way to compliment them. And, and the story goes, he went up to this one guy that worked under him named Lenny. And he compliments Lenny. And a couple of days pass, and Lenny brings him an Xbox 360. Steve is really taken aback by it. And let me just read you what, what the story, what, how the book says it. It says, Steve was taken aback because he knew that Lenny had taken a pay cut last year, but he was even more surprised that the money came from the cell of a 9 millimeter pistol, the pistol that Lenny had bought months earlier with the intention of killing himself. Lenny told Steve of his mother's death the previous year and the loneliness and depression that had sunk in, Lenny said, I started a routine every night after work, eating a bowl of ramen, listening to Nirvana, and getting the gun out. It took almost a month to get the courage to put the bullets in the gun. It took another couple of months to get used to the barrel on the top of my teeth. The last few weeks, I was, putting ever, I was pulling ever so slight pressure on the trigger, and I was getting so close, so close. But last week, Steve... You freaked me out. You came into my cubicle and you put your arm around me and you told me that you appreciated me because I turn in all my projects early and that helps me sleep at night and that you appreciated my sense of humor over email. That night I went home, ate ramen, listened to Nirvana and got the gun out and it scared me silly for the first time and all I could think about is what you said, that you were glad that I came into your life. The next day, I went back to the pawn shop and sold my gun, and I remember you said you wanted an Xbox more than anything, but with the new baby, you couldn't afford it. So, for my life, you get this game. Thanks, boss. Isn't that amazing? Who would have ever thought putting your arm around somebody and just telling them, I think you're doing a great job and I really appreciate your humor, that that would have such an impact? And I think Jesus is showing us in the story 
the thing that changes the world are those small little acts of humility where you express love to other people. We think it's the big things. It's the big events. It's the conferences. It's the camps. It's the debates. It's the whatever. And Jesus says, no, it's through the, it's through the small, humiliating little acts of service and love that you extend to other people. That's what changes the world. That's what erodes your pride. I mean, when was the last time that you, you looked at somebody and just said something intentionally encouraging to them? Just to bless them. You may have no idea what that does to that person. When was the last time that you said, I'm just going to go, I'm going to move towards meeting somebody's need in a way that they might never thank me for, may not even notice. But it's those small, overlooked, servant-like, humiliating things that bring life into the world and actually undo the pride inside of you. I want to end with this, and this has become very personal to me. The past couple of weeks, my wife has been really sick. She's still really sick. We don't really know what's going on with her. It's not like she doesn't have a uh, a cold or a stomach bug or anything. She's just like really tired and fatigued and her energy is kind of bottomed out. This is why she's not kind of on staff right now. She's just kind of taking a leave of absence just for medical reasons. We're, we're going to doctors and specialists and doing bl- all kinds of blood work. We're waiting on all kinds of tests. We don't really know what's going on for her. You can pray for her, for us. But what that has meant for me is that really for the past three weeks, I've functioned as a single parent meaning I'm overseeing our children and our house and our yard and this ministry and not doing any of it really well. But some of y'all, I'm not going to highlight, some of y'all have heard about that and have driven out to our house, which is, you know, 15 minutes from campus or so, driven out to our house and brought us meals that y'all have cooked Y'all have, uh, one of y'all showed up with like this giant bag of like um, Zoe's Kitchen food for us. One of y'all drove 15 minutes out to our house and just stayed. The only, the only time window we had was like for 30 minutes just to help me like straighten up the kitchen. And as y'all have done that to me and to us, there's that like that Peter um, pride resistance thing that's happening, that happened to me where it's like... I, I don't, I, don't, I don't want that. I don't need that. I don't need that kind of help. I don't need that. Like, I, I got this under control. And, um, which is not true because I didn't have this under control and I did need the help. But this whole passage has been really meaningful to me for the ways that y'all have showed love to me and my family because what y'all have done, I mean, who drives 15 minutes out of campus having prepared a meal just to drop it off for, for us and then and drive back like no you don't have time for that and you've done that and it has made me and my family feel so loved and I, I want to end with this thought have you of course you've had this idea you've had this thought where it says I know that God loves me I wish that I could feel it you know what I'm saying I, I know cognitively God loves me I wish I could experience it what if you had the power to let somebody else experience it, to almost in some ways zap them and let them know God loves you. Jesus seems to suggest that you do have that power. When you you give of your time and your energy and your money and your your resources to bless somebody else, you're communicating to them, God loves you. That's how he shows his love for you. 
What is the medicine for your pride? It's to receive the love that Jesus has for you. And then it's to reflect it in the world to other people. To receive his love and then to reflect it to others. That's the medicine for your pride. Consider it an invitation tonight. Let me pray. Father, thank you uh, that you love us, that you give of yourself for us in ways that make us it feel so uncomfortable, <laughs> in ways that undoes us and assaults our pride because we don't know how to just receive. And yet, Father, I pray that you would bring us to a place where we would be okay with and feel the freedom of just receiving your humiliating, sacrificial, servant love for us. And Father, I pray for even just this community, would it transform us in such a way that we would begin reflecting that love into the lives of our friends and our families and the people in our hall and the people in our house. Father, transform us into not just receivers of love, but those that even reflect it into the lives of others. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.